everyone, and Happy New Year. Glad to see you all, glad to be back. I missed you all over the last few weeks. I hope you have stayed warm and there were no busted pipes. Did you all see the pipe that busted out in front of the church? No. Yeah, yeah, on Douglas, if you are, if you go by right in front of the doors of the church, you'll see some cones. Um, I guess it was midday, well, really late morning on Christmas Day. <laughs> One of the pipes that was right by the street, so it was decently away from the church building, burst. And it was so forceful that it was pushing some of the asphalt up on Douglas. I mean, that was, and it took 24 hours for the city to turn the water off. <laughs> so I think Christmas Day, nobody really cared. They didn't want to come out. Um, but thankfully, we didn't have any, I mean, no damage at all in the buildings. It was way far away. But some of the bricks lost their life. And so we're going to have to do some kind of repair there. But I hope none of you had any problems at your house. Um, it's a pretty day today. 80 degrees. Hey, can't, can't not shake a stick at that. Um, let's have a prayer, and we're going to get started. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Gracious God, in this new year, we give you thanks. We give you thanks for bringing us together. We give you thanks for lives that are filled with purpose. And we ask that you help us to put down those things which cause us worry and stress and anxiety. Help us to make space inside of us so your spirit can fill us up. Give us an inspiration moment today. Help us to be changed and transformed as we continue to grow closer to you, that we can help to extend your grace and love to everyone we need. Be with all those we hold in our hearts and minds, those who need your healing touch, those we've lost and we love and see no longer. Bring peace to us all and to our world. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So a reminder, we send an email every week, one, that helps to remind people that we're meeting and there is a new bookmark if you do not have it yet. We've got a new bookmark now available. It was sent out digitally. It is on our website, stmichael.org slash rbs. And you can pick up a physical copy or two here as you leave. We've got them at our doors. And if you do not get Bub's regular weekly reminder of this class, then we invite you to put your email address there. You can join that email list and make sure that you know what's going on. And for those of you joining us online, I hope that you will send Bub a note. You can find her name and email address on our website so that you can get those reminders as well so you can join us live wherever you are. So today we are continuing in 2 Samuel, and before we jump into that, just a quick note that given this season of epiphany, um, we had a couple people today just remind me that we've got a Lessons and Carol service coming up on January 22nd. We have done, we are doing three Lessons and Carol services this year, Advent, Christmas, and Epiphany, to tell the big old story of how God is doing saving work in the world, particularly through Jesus Christ. And so what we have done is in Advent, we start to tell the story that is prophetic about the Messiah. Then at Christmas, we talk all about Jesus's birth and his purpose. And at Epiphany, we talk about Jesus's ministry and then going out into the world after his death and resurrection. And so what we see in the representation in our musicians and our choir is that at Advent, they start in the narthex of the church and they slowly shift in different spaces to end up by the altar. At Christmas, they are all around the altar singing. And then at Epiphany, they start up front 
and then they will begin to shift into space as they leave in the narthex going back out into the world it's super cool and it's just a bunch of scriptures and music and so if you like the bible and music which i mean who doesn't then join us January 22nd at 4 p.m., and we're going to stream it as well. And so we hope that you will have that be a gift to you in this epiphany season. All right, 2 Samuel, here we go. We are now at the point in our story where David is king. David's kingship is now solidly in, and David's high point, really the high point of everything that he does, is in the chapters we're going to study today, chapter 7 through 10 of 2 Samuel. And as I'll note later, um, really after this, it's kind of downhill from here. Um, poor David. But today we're going to talk about some of the good stuff. We've got three sections of today's lesson between chapter 7 through 10. The first is going to be talking about God's house. Second, the covenant that God makes with David. And then third, we're going to actually hit a few of the pinnacles of David's kingship and why this is the high point. And so we're not going to be reading every single bit of chapter 7 through 10, but we're going to be skipping around. We're going to spend most of our time in chapters 7 and 9. So turn to chapter 7, and we're going to kick it off with verse 1. A note before we get to verse 1 of chapter 7. All of a sudden, in, in verse 2, we get Nathan is on the scene. And Nathan kind of comes out of nowhere. We don't, we're not introduced to him at all. He just exists, and he is speaking. And so just a note that Nathan is a prophet in the court. And so just like Samuel became kind of the king's prophet, Nathan has now replaced that role, kind of is Samuel's successor, so to speak. And Nathan is David's court prophet for pretty much the rest of the time that David is king. And so when Nathan just appears, that's the role that he is playing. He's kind of God's voice on earth. And we're going to see that Nathan isn't always quite right, which is fine. You know, nobody's perfect. Okay, chapter 7, verse 1. Now when the king, David, was settled in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, the king said to the prophet Nathan, See now, I am living in a house of cedar. But the ark of God stays in a tent. Nathan said to the king, Go do all that you have in mind, for the Lord is with you. Okay, we're going to pause here. What happens in these first couple verses is a pivot. David has established his kingship, and he's living in a big, fancy house. So when we say a house of cedar, that might not translate to us as big, fancy house, but that's really what this means. The cedars of Lebanon, those were like the best building materials you could have. Of course, there's stone and all the other stuff. But when we hear something about the cedars, what that should translate to us is really nice. And so just think of it as David now is king. He's moved his capital to Jerusalem. He has established himself in a nice big house. And so David as king looks out and he says, look at God. God's still living in a tent. God really shouldn't just live in a tent. We should get something nice and big and fancy for God too, because I should not have some big fancy house while God is out there in a tent. And so he says this to Nathan, the prophet, and Nathan says, hey, that sounds good, David. Do whatever you want that, that works. So Nathan, as the prophet, is giving David the thumbs up, the go ahead. Let's talk for a minute about what a prophet's role actually is in the Old Testament. Prophets' roles can be a few different ways, but there are two main ways that prophets function in the Old Testament. The first is independent of power structures. 
So we, of course, are familiar with some of the biggie prophets like Isaiah and Elijah and Jeremiah. They are independent of the power structures. They are out in the wilderness. They are talking, you know, truth to power or whatever you want to say. They are totally separated. John the Baptist is very much in the line of that kind of prophet. They are not dependent on anybody. They're out there wearing camel's hair and eating bugs. That's really what some of those prophets are doing. And they often captivate our minds as sort of the real prophets because they're saying exactly what they want to say, exactly the way they want to say it, regardless of what anyone might think or feel. Then we have dependent prophets. And those dependent prophets look like Samuel and Nathan, much more Nathan than Samuel, but they, are tend, they tend to be yoked to some kind of power structure. And so in the sense, Nathan's on the payroll. He's there in the court. He's got a place to live. David's sort of keeping him safe and secure, even though David is a faithful person with good religious intentions and he wants Nathan to tell him the truth. Put yourself in Nathan's shoes, and as a prophet, you're going to say some stuff, but whenever you speak to David, the person who is providing your house and your food and your clothes and everything else, maybe you're not going to bite quite so hard. I mean, your teeth are not quite so sharp. And so Nathan occasionally finds himself in a position where he kind of says the thing he thinks David wants to hear. That's what has happened in these first few verses of chapter 7. David's feeling a little maybe guilty. Maybe David's thinking, well, let's do something nice for God and build God a big house. And Nathan's in the position to be like, yes, king, sounds great. You're so wise, you should do that. But kind of with some irony, God comes to visit Nathan that night to make sure Nathan is not just telling David what David wants to hear. And so let's keep going with verse four. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, are you the one to build me a house to live in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent and a tabernacle. Wherever I have moved about among all the people of Israel, did I ever speak a word with any of the tribal leaders of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus you shall say to the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be prince over my people Israel, and I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may live in their own place, and be disturbed no more." and evildoers shall afflict them no more, as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. And so we'll pause there. So first off, Nathan jumped the gun. And so Nathan, being a nice little prophet, telling David what he thought he wanted him to hear, God comes and like pokes him on the shoulder and says, Hey, Nathan, did I ever say anything about a house? 
I don't want a house. Do you think I couldn't get a house for myself if I wanted a house? I don't want a house. I would have said that already. And so he says, Nathan, that's not the point of what is happening here. And so Nathan gets a little correction, good. But really what's happening here is something much deeper. There is a genuinely profound way in which God is setting up his economy that is not exactly the way we like God's economy set up. What God does for us is really the point, not what we do for God. And I want us to kind of marinate in this idea for a moment because we could flip it off very easily as if it's something simple and we're all good, but we're not all good with this. We, as American Christians, we like to earn stuff. We like to accomplish stuff. We like to succeed at things. We like to build and turn around and look and be proud of what we've done. And in that good, good intention, we can often confuse what we're called to be as Christian disciples. I am totally guilty of this. And so I say all the time, I talk about building God's kingdom. Yes, good, that's fine, it's okay, but it's not actually what we see in the Gospels. Jesus never says, hey, help me build God's kingdom. Not actually. What Jesus really calls us to do is to seek after God's kingdom, to receive God's kingdom, to declare God's kingdom. Jesus never says, I need your help. That's not quite it. What Jesus tells us about God's kingdom is that it is given to us. That's the grace. We just get to receive it. And that's where we anchor the theology around, we do not earn God's grace. We do not earn God's love or God's kingdom. <clears throat> Nothing we've done or will do will separate us from God's grace and love because God gives it to us, period, the end, that's it. We just get to receive it, but that's not often good enough for us because we define who we are much about what we can do rather than what we can be. It is that doing that I often preference. And so I'm, I'm, I'm totally with you. I am like straight up good achievement oriented person, just like the rest of you. And so I often confuse this too. And it's not, it's not the end of the world, but I do want us to see right here what is happening with the storytellers. Let's look one more time at what is happening here in chapter seven. Look at verse eight. God says, therefore, you, Nathan, shall say to my servant, David, listen to what God says. I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep to be prince over my people, Israel. I have been with you wherever you went, and I have cut off your enemies from before you, and I will make you a great name like none of the names on the earth. And then at the very end, he says, I will build you a house. This is profound because David, David, of all the stories, David is lifted up as this excellent leader. We've talked in here before, which, and we can talk about this a bit more if you wish, but the Messiah, this idea of Messiah and Savior of the world is absolutely rooted in the identity of David. David as this military leader. David is this politically savvy person who achieves unity and security all in Jerusalem for the Israelites, for God's chosen people, and it's so easy 
for everyone, us and the people 2,000 years ago and even before, to misunderstand that David did that. When really right here, the writers understand that God did that. Now David said yes. David went along. David was faithful. All of that matters. But David didn't do it. God did. That's where we are invited to enter into as well. Now, it's not as if we are not victims. We are absolutely participants in this work. But the participation is not 50-50. God does for us. We say thank you. We reflect. We give away. We invite other people in. We seek after God again and again. And we seek to find God again and again. Yes, all of that is true. But we need to stop short of thinking that the work that happens on earth that brings about God's kingdom wouldn't be able to happen without our effort. That's not quite right. We receive. And what God is saying through Nathan to David is don't get too big for your riches. That's what he's saying. You were a little shepherd out in the pasture. Remember, king, I took you, plucked you out of nothing. And I think all of us, regardless of our achievement, can, if we're honest, go way back to say, we used to be nothing. And anything that we have achieved has definitely been through hard work, but when we look out in the world and see other people who work hard, and are not in the same place as us, or do not have the same security as us, or do not have the same, it's very important that we don't somehow confuse our blessings with somehow God's favor. That's not quite right. That's a little messy, and it's come bad theology. And if you disagree with me, then Joel Osteen's got a church for you. But <laughs> what we do, what we do here is not that. It's not. What we do here is we are grateful and we maintain humility. And we still do work hard. Of course we do. But let's not confuse our efforts with God's efforts like it's 50-50. Okay. I'm done because I could probably keep rolling on that for a while. Um, what do you think? How does that feel? Is that something that you find annoying or frustrating or difficult? Or does that sound refreshing? Or does that lower some anxiety? Because really, you don't have to worry so much. I was just talking with someone the other day about just the Christmas holiday and whatnot. And I referenced how I don't really worry. And they're like, well, isn't that nice? And I said, well, it's not as if that hasn't been worked on. But when we hear in scripture, you know, look at the lilies of the field, you know, they don't worry or toil and God takes care of them. Worry cannot add a day to your life. I mean, that's powerful stuff. It doesn't mean you just be like, I just won't worry. I mean, that's not how it works. But if we create almost um, like a mantra for ourselves, when we find ourselves worrying or stressed or anxious, then actually over time, we can nudge ourselves little by little, day by day, into a place where we actually can ratchet down the intensity 
of the worry and the anxiety. It doesn't ever go away. I mean, maybe you can become Zen or something and it totally goes away. But honestly, it can be reduced significantly if you try to remind yourself over and over again that, hey, I mean, the, we, worrying doesn't do anything productive and that everything we have is a gift. Life's a gift. All the stuff we have is a gift. All the good relationships are a gift. All the bad relationships are a gift. Everything is a gift. I saw the most wonderful, you know what, Bub, make a note. I want to send this video out to our um, listener. Um, I was sent a video a couple days ago of this sweet little boy, I don't know where, who is singing this great old gospel song. And then some guy kind of created a whole music bed around his sweet voice. And it's, it's wonderful and delightful. And it's all about, I thank you for the good things and I thank you for the bad things. I thank you for the sunshine. I thank you for the rain. I thank you for, and it kind of goes back and forth and back and forth with the intention that gratitude for everything, and that cannot make sense to a lot of people if we only focus on the stuff that makes us feel good or the stuff that the world says is good. We actually just say thank you, total, for it all. And that will nudge us into a different way of being over time that might actually ratchet down that worry and that anxiety. Okay, there's enough. Thoughts, yes. Chris, I get confused with the word blessings and what does that mean? All right, the whole concept of blessing. Um, so this is something that I definitely have talked about, um, I've preached about in the past. The, it is annoying to me when people equate blessing to good. That's not right. Or blessing to um, privilege or blessing to any of those sorts of things. Because oftentimes people, you know, you've got like your, you know, your matcha latte and your little, you know, avocado toast and you're in the sunshine with big glasses and you're like, blessed. Um, you know, that's not it. So I, we see that kind of stupid stuff all the time. And unfortunately, we get confused by the idea that somehow what makes us feel good or is it, is somehow uh, moving us up is a blessing. And that anything that isn't that, then isn't a blessing. And so then we follow down this path where those of us who are secure or healthy or filled or whatever, look at the people who are not none of those things and say, well, thankfully we are so blessed. And we, I mean, unfortunately we pray like this sometimes, you know, thank you for our blessings. And what we really are thinking is all the good things. That's dangerous. There's nothing wrong with being grateful for the things that fill us up, but it can't stop there. The blessing is so much bigger than however we perceive things. Blessing comes with every experience. And on, the, on our ride back, we drive to and from Florida at Christmas, um, and we went a different route. This, oh my gosh, this is like way too much story for you. But we went a different route on the way back, which took us through Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And so that naturally reminded Nicole and me of Garth Brooks's great Baton Rouge song. And so we're like, where is that CD? And we definitely had Garth Brooks' greatest hits in the little something. I don't know, we found it in some pocket. And so we put it on 
And one of the songs that came on was Thank God for Unanswered Prayers. Remember that song? Yes. I love that song. It's not perfect theology, but there is this sense of we don't get what we want when we want it. And that at the best, what God's fidelity to us and love for us is, if we are faithful back, is that we can make good things out of the bad things. And so that's an important nuance. Appreciating God's blessings definitely means we don't get what we want when we want it. But it also doesn't mean that every bad thing in our life was intended by God. And that's important too. Because if we, yeah, I, think, I think I've said this in here before, there is a, yeah, I'll put it this way. Sorry, I do not mean this to be insulting. There is a, essentially like a theological coping mechanism when we experience pain that people say well, it's all part of God's plan. And genuinely, whatever, if that's, if that's what you need and that makes sense, don't, don't listen to me. But I think a better version of that is that God helps us make good things out of bad. It's similar, but for us to begin to say that God somehow intends for us to experience pain, that to me is problematic. I don't see that in the person of Jesus. And so remember the, my whole thing, we start with Jesus. Now in the, old, in the rest of the Bible outside of the gospels, we may see God doing that kind of stuff, but that's a storyteller's perception of what God does. And I think in Jesus, we actually see God incarnate and we don't get that from him. And so I think it's problematic for us to think that God intends us pain as a lesson or something like that. However, I do think God allows us to experience pain and then is there with us in the pain and then can help us transform that pain into something truly wonderful. But it does take both God and us faithful together to transform bad into good. I mean, Jesus still died. Jesus was still beaten and crucified and put in the tomb. That's not fake, but it was turned into something amazing. And I think that is the model for us, that God's intention is not for us to experience pain, but when we do, God helps us see something good in the pain. To me, that promise is a blessing. And so for us to receive all that we experience as blessing, sometimes it's a nice, easy one. You know, I do like avocado toast, so sometimes that's okay. But when something bad happens, and I don't mean something bad like, you know, they messed up my order at a restaurant. I mean something bad like your child rejects you or a loved one kills themselves. I mean. I'm talking bad. When that happens, if we can get ourselves in a mode to say we're not being abandoned by God, that God is there with us in that pain, and even the most tragic experience can become something beautiful, that kind of faithfulness, I think, is what sustains us in the deepest, most profound way to understand blessing. All right, what else? Uh, back to 
chapter 7 and uh, God's being a provider and us being a receiver. When we do acts of kindness um, in our lives, charitable things or whatever, not trying to earn anything just because we feel compelled to do it through our faith, do, does this register with God at all or is it just for our own transformation? When we do, I, I, I like how you put that because that's, that's hard, Krista. Okay, hold on. So when we do good things, does that register with God in some way? Are you, so, okay, let me, let me play this, play around with this for a minute. So let's start with what I think is implicit in that question, which is in a sense, do we get some credit? Um, yeah, so, I mean, technically, technically when we talk about grace, grace is unearned and undeserved. That kind of grace then is given without earning anything. I do though think that what is earned is much more about who we are becoming when we do good things than to do with God. I think God's love for us is perfect, whole, complete from the start. And we definitely cannot do anything to either make that more or less. I mean, and those of us who have children or those of us who have had, um, you know, beautiful relationships, you know, like spouses or siblings or whatever, we know that there, is, there are relationships where love, there is no more or less love for a person. Like there's just total love. And I think that's the best way for us to potentially understand God's love for us is God may think that we're dumb sometimes or that we're being real mean sometimes or that maybe we did a nice thing sometimes, but that doesn't actually change love. I mean, some of you know that I remember when I became a parent, I knew very clearly, of course, I'd had, I mean, how many years of seminary graduate work at that point? Um, I knew I would love my children forever, but I fully expected not to like them all the time. And so that, that's it, right? I mean, I, I definitely think God doesn't like us sometimes, but the love does not change. However, we change because of our actions. And so I think when we do good, when we are kind, when we share love, we are being transformed. And I do think God wants that for us. I don't think that's God doing it or giving us credit, keeping score in some way. But I do think the more good we do, the more good we become. And so to me, that's the big difference between say, spirituality, faith, belief, and religion. They're not the same thing. Belief exists. That's something with God. That, that, is a, that is a thinking and a feeling and a being, all of that. That's good. But religion's a doing. I mean, when you come to church, you do that. When you collect goods as a donation, you're doing that. When you go serve in the community, you're doing that. When you come to a Bible study, you're doing that. That doing is actually impacting the being. And so people can, you know, go jogging in the forest and like be with God or whatever, which is fine. I mean, God's everywhere. I, I don't doubt that God's present. But for anyone who thinks 
doing that is somehow genuinely developing their spirituality, I think they're totally missing what is just human psychology and, and just human beings, which is we gotta do the stuff. If we don't do it and all we do is talk about it and think about it, it's like thinking really hard about running a marathon, never actually getting out and running, and then showing up for the race. You're not gonna finish that race. I mean, you've got to actually do stuff to be able to run that race. And I think that's where religion comes in. That's the practice and the doing. It's like going to the gym. You can't experience pain in your life and then have the faithfulness to make something good out of it if you've not prepared for that moment. And when someone is in crisis, that really isn't the time to prepare. You know, it's like you may not have prepared for the marathon, but when that bear starts to chase you, try. You better try to run. I mean, you know, but you're not going to run quite as fast or as far as had you been preparing for it. And so I think for us, part of the gift to children, part of the gift to friends and to ourselves is we come and we do church, we do religion regularly like a workout so that when bad stuff happens, we are as ready as we can be to receive it, to understand that there is a blessing in it, even if we don't want that blessing at all, and then to make something good out of it. If we're not prepared for that, it doesn't make any sense. Any other thoughts or questions? Okay, let's go on to section two. Section two is about God's covenant with David. Now, what is interesting about this section, before we read any of it, there is a, there's definitely a uh, comparison being made here between David's house and Saul's house. What I want us to keep in mind as we read a few verses here is that the way God is saying he will treat David's house versus Saul's house is not necessarily God saying these things as much as it is the people who wrote the story perceiving the difference between David and Saul. Now let's read these verses and then we're going to talk more about why I might see it that way. Chapter 7 verse 12. <clears throat> so remember, God has just said to David through Nathan, I'm going to build you a house. Don't worry about me. Okay? Chapter 7 verse 12. When your days, David, are fulfilled and you lie down with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come forth from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will punish him with a rod such as mortals use, with blows inflicted by human beings, but I will not Take my steadfast love from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And I will pause there. So, spoiler alert, David doesn't build the temple, David's son Solomon does. Now everybody knows that, 
And so this story is being written. This story is even being written after that temple Solomon built has been destroyed. Because remember, when the Babylonians come down, they destroy Jerusalem. They destroy the temple. They take the people into exile. That's when all this stuff is being written. They're about to rebuild the temple when they get out of that exile. And so all of these stories, they know this. And so the way they are telling this story is important. Somehow, Saul fell out of favor with God because David was anointed king before Saul was gone. Why? Well, that's essentially what all of 1 Samuel was trying to explain, is that Saul messed up, or Saul messed up and God then lost favor with Saul, or it's messy. Because it's important that we don't simply take it at face value. God did not somehow get cross with Saul and then chuck Saul out in order to replace David. But something like that happened. And so the storyteller is trying to make sense of why David, who is not Saul's son, succeeded Saul. And then Solomon, who is David's son, succeeded David. How, how did that happen? And so they're building a narrative around a historical truth that helps to explain to the Jewish people what to make of Saul's son did not become king but David's son did. And so this narrative is now being constructed around David in a very intentional way to make sure that not only is it explained why Solomon became king after David, but to explain why David didn't build a temple. Now it would make total sense that David, who unified all the tribes of Israel, who defeated all of the enemies of Israel, who unified everyone in the capital of Jerusalem. He danced before the ark, coming into Jerusalem. It seems natural that David would have built something for the ark, really like put his flag in the ground, this is who we are, but it didn't happen. Now, why didn't it happen? This is one version of the story why. We know Solomon's going to do it, because that's just, at this point, historic record. But the question why David didn't do it is important. David can't be perceived as unfaithful. David really can't be perceived as someone who only did for himself and not for God's goodness. David has to be seen as someone kind of great. And so we are establishing this David-Solomon one-two punch to both do something good for the people, that's David, and to do something glorious for God, that's Solomon. Mm -mm -mm. I will note one more thing. We will see with Solomon in a few months, because we'll get there before the end of this school year. God is very clear with David that he does not desire a physical house but in the same way that God did not desire a king. God said to the people over and over again, uh, you don't need a king, you, don't, you shouldn't have a king. And finally everyone says, we really want a king. And so God just says, okay. And so then Saul, then David, then Solomon. Well, right now, David's kind of saying, we should build a temple. We should build something that isn't the tent for the ark. And God says, I don't need that. Go about your business. Like, do the stuff that you're supposed to do. Don't worry about building something fancy for me. But that 
will come up again and again and again. And ultimately with Solomon, God will kind of just coalesce in the same way that God coalesced with a monarchy, God will coalesce around a temple. When Solomon builds the temple, God's not real excited the way they tell the story. God just sort of says, fine. I mean, if you need a temple, build a temple. It is okay. And it, that always hits me because, of course, we have buildings. I mean, look, we, we built the building. And I think at its best, God doesn't need this. And we should always remember, God does not need this. God does not need our silver stuff and our marble stuff and our gold stuff and whatever. But we are human and it actually can help us. It's not necessary, but man, it is super helpful for us to have a place that feels sacred, that feels set apart, that feels special, that puts us in that mind of focusing on God. Um, I think I've said this in here before, but I was, it's kind of like wear nice clothes to church. I've said to my kids all the time, like you never have to wear nice clothes to church. If you were ever in a position in your life where you need church, you go. It doesn't matter what you're wearing, how you look, how you smell, you go, because that's fine. But if it's just a normal Sunday and you have time to wear something nice, you should because as you prepare for church, you are physically acting out what is special about church. You are doing something unique in your week that sets apart everything else you do. And that's important for us as humans to have that kind of experience where we set apart something because it pivots us. It kind of calls our attention to focus on God in a way that we should be doing all the time, but we don't. And so because we are imperfect, something like a building with stained glass or clothes that are nicer or different than normal and all of those things, that's good for us. Necessary? No. But good and helpful? Sure. And so in a sense, by the time we get to Solomon, God says, fine, it's, it does no harm to have a temple. Jesus might disagree. But essentially in this story, it's like, sure, have a nice place and put me in a house of cedar, that's fine. It, just don't let that become more important. That's where we get off the rails. When the stuff is more important than what it's supposed to help us become, that's when we get into trouble. Okay, questions or comments about that? Okay, section three, the rest of these chapters. That's really what we're doing here. So chapter seven's done. These next two chapters, eight, nine, 10, it's really all about David being good at being king. And so it's a number of wars and political savvy and military successes and whatever. We can essentially define David's high point in his kingship in two ways. The first is sort of the worldly politician stuff. It's being politically, military, and economically successful. In 1 Samuel, one of the key factors in the people's desire for a monarchy was to protect themselves from the groups of people that were around Israel that were threatening their sovereignty, their security. David comes up 
as being the best person to do that. David was really good at running a military unit. He was able to defend or even offend against the people around Israel to create Israel's security. And so essentially what David has done in unifying all the tribes and relocating capital to Jerusalem is he has put down all of these other groups that are neighbors to the Israelites in a way that maintains their sovereignty. So you've got groups like the Philistines and you've got groups like the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Edomites. These are all kin, in a sense, to the Israelites that go way back to before or during the kind of patriarchy period. So let me pause so that makes sense. Remember that the Semitic peoples actually anchor themselves back in Ur. Abraham left Ur and went up essentially from what is kind of Iraq-ish, up through Mesopotamia and down into what is today Israel. So there was this kind of arc that Abraham traveled. When he got over to Israel, he was a Semitic person in an area that had none. And so Abraham begins a branch of what we understand as Semitic peoples and tribes when he shifts to Israel. Now, of course, we Abraham has Ishmael and Isaac, and then Isaac has Jacob and Esau. Jacob then has all his 12 sons that then ends with Joseph, really Benjamin, but then Joseph goes to Egypt, and then all of that line, Jacob's line, goes to Egypt. But just remember, you had Abraham, Ishmael, and Isaac, okay? Isaac had Jacob and Esau. It's only Jacob's line that goes to Egypt. You still have all the cousins back at home. And so you've got all of these cousins who were all Semitic peoples in their own right, who did not go through all the stuff that we've talked about, Egypt and Moses and Joshua and Promised Land and all the other stuff. They are separated in these other tribes. So you've got the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites. These are all kind of cousins who live differently than the Jacobite Israelites. And yet, are all Semitic. What David has done is unified Israel. Those are Jacob's descendants. So much so that they can now resist solidly all of their little cousin tribes that are all around them. That is a political win. And it creates this excellent sovereignty for Israel under David's kingship. In a sense, because David has been so good at that, what we see is that David almost becomes the king over an empire. It's not just a single country. What we see is David's flexing and controlling all these other tribal groups around him because of the economics of Israel. It's not unlike what happens with the big countries in our world today. America can kind of flex around neighbors and partners when it comes to economy. I mean, remember what happened in 2022? The dollar got stronger, 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 and America was like, sorry. And so everyone else in the world is going through this rapid inflation. Not that we didn't go through inflation, but as the dollar strengthened, all these other economies were having a lot of trouble. And America didn't have to really do anything about it. We just sort of said, what are we supposed to do? We're just awesome. And so that's kind of 
what happens with some of these other countries. I mean, that's what happens in Asia with China, right? I mean, as China opens up post-COVID, the whole world is like, what's gonna happen? Because essentially China's been closed for three years. And so now as China begins to export and import and people can travel and business is done again, and it's like this tidal wave of we're not sure is coming. And so Israel kind of becomes that in this little region so strong that they essentially are controlling the fortunes and the realities of all these other tribes that fall outside of their particular group. Does that all make sense? Okay, so that's one way to understand David's success here, the achievement. The second way is to understand David's authority over the people. David now has significant control and authority over kinda everyone. And we see that played out in a very micro way in chapter nine. So that's what we're gonna look at right now is David's impact on one particular household and individual because of his earned or gained authority. So look at chapter nine. We're gonna start at verse one, but I'm gonna jump. I'll tell you when I jump. So David's done a lot of good things and now David here is almost looking around going, ah, what should I do next? So chapter nine, verse one, David asked, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul to whom I may show kindness for Jonathan's sake? By the way, this comes out of nowhere, like in the, in the thread of the story. Verse two, now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. I'm gonna say Ziba. I have no idea how to pronounce his name. Whose name was Ziba and he was summoned to David. Verse three, the king said, is there anyone remaining of the house of Saul to whom I may show kindness of God? Ziba said to the king, there remains a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. Jump to verse six. Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and did obeisance. David said, Mephibosheth. He answered, I am your servant. David said to him, do not be afraid for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore you all to the land of your grandfather Saul, and you yourself shall eat at my table always. He did obeisance and said, What is your servant, that you should look upon a dead dog such as I? Then the king summoned Saul's servant Ziba and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. You and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce so that your master's grandson may have food to eat but your master's grandson, Mephibosheth, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord, the king commands his servants, so your servants shall do. Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he always ate at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet, which is fine. So I'm gonna call him M, because I never wanna say that name again. So what we have here in this little moment is that David's kinda comfy. He's sort of done all the stuff. And so he's looking around and being politically savvy, he says, hey, is there anyone here left from Saul's family? Why would he want to know that? Anyone? That is very kind. 
So David, maybe two re- so maybe there are two reasons, because I'm gonna give you that. David may want to take care of Saul's line because of Jonathan. We know that Jonathan and David had a super unique, loving relationship, and Jonathan died in battle. David didn't get to say goodbye. I mean, it, it makes total sense that Jonathan would be someone David missed because of their love, and that he would want to take care of Jonathan's descendants. Yes. Answer number two. <laughs> Say again. Bingo. Keep your enemies close. So remember, David is not Saul's son. There are still people around who were faithful to Saul who probably wanted one of Saul's descendants to be king, not David. It's totally normal that a monarch would be seceded by an heir that is bloodline. It is unusual that David, having not been part of Saul's bloodline, would have become king next. And so David, as after he's done all of the marching out and fighting and whatever stuff, now he's becoming a bit more of a politician. And he's looking out there and he thinks, now, wait a minute. What if someone's out there who could claim to be Israel's rightful king? And he discovers that M is out there, crippled, poor, but still Saul's grandson. And so David brings M in and he says, come on in. I'm going to give you a bunch of land and servants to work the land. You're going to benefit from all of this stuff. But David doesn't say, and I'm going to build you a house for you and all your servants and you're going to love it. David says, you're going to eat at my table for the rest of your life. Ha ha. So what David does is he brings his potential enemy right on in to his table. And very similarly to Nathan, M's now basically on the payroll of the king and the court. He has every incentive to not seek to undermine David because his life's quite good. And so he's just going to take it as a gift and not rock the boat. Co-opting. It is a brilliant strategy. And so David has brought in this descendant of Saul very close. And if you, you may recall that upon Saul's death, there was, if you go back to, oh man, 1 Samuel 14, I don't remember. No, that doesn't sound right. I don't remember. But Saul dies and there's this frantic race away from Saul's house. And Mephibosheth is a boy, a young boy. And in the race to leave, he gets injured. And his injury, he is, I think, dropped by maybe a, a maid or a servant of some kind. Maybe, I don't know if it was a nursemaid, whatever. And he is somehow paralyzed because of that accident when they were fleeing Saul's house. And so there is, in a sense, this almost, he owes it to this boy, now man, to take care of him. And so there's a nice thing here, and I think the storyteller meant for it to come across as nice, but we are a bit wiser than that to know that if he's kept close, then he is not a problem. And so as I noted, this is really the high point. Um, it's kind of easy. Reading through chapters eight through 10 is, is not difficult. When we get to chapter 10 and a half, um, 
David makes a mistake. And so we know what that mistake, who, what's the mistake? Bathsheba, y'all, come on. I mean, it's the good stuff. The drama is about to start. And so I did not want to do that today because it is way too good for us to waste in just five minutes. And so we are hitting Bathsheba next week and I'm excited because it's the good stuff. And so with that, today is over and I appreciate you and I look forward to seeing you next week as we move on. Bye, everybody.